Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. To those of you who haven't listened before, welcome. For those of you who are familiar with the podcast, we're trying something a little different. Instead of monthly installments, we'll be releasing them every two weeks. Each month, you'll hear one newsy episode and another that features an interview. Today, JZK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski will interview Sally Morrison, CMO of Lightbox Jewelry. Welcome to the Jewelry District. My name is Rob Bates. I'm the news director of JCK and JCK Online. And in Los Angeles, we have... Victoria Gamelski, editor-in-chief of JCK and JCK Online. Hi. And in the studio, we have with us... Sally Morrison. The, the legendary. <laughs> I can't even introduce you. You, you cut me off. Sorry. <laughs> the legendary Sally Morrison, who your current title is Chief Marketing Officer... Of yes. Lightbox. Yes. The De Beers lab grown diamond brand. And before you worked at Lightbox, you've been at the Diamond Information Center. Yep. Forevermark. Yes. World Gold Council. Gemfields. Did I miss anything? DPA. DPA. Oh, Diamond Producers. Oh, okay. All right. That's right. Diamond Producers Association. And before we start, I should also mention that you won the Jewels of America Award for Lifetime Achievement. That's right. And before we start, I should formally say, hi, Sally. It's hey, good how are you? <laughs> good. I wish I was there in person. Yeah, me too, me too. You want to start off with your background, how you got in the industry? Because I know certainly your, your pre-industry background is very eclectic and interesting. And uh... Yeah, I, I did have another life before jewelry. When I first came to the U.S., I worked for an organization called the American Foundation for AIDS Research. And I actually was one of the first people hired there. I think maybe the third, per, second or third person hired there. And I ended up staying there 14 years. That was a huge piece of my life and definitely has shaped my perception of American culture, you know, and how philanthropy works here and stuff like that. You once told me that you were there in the very beginning, as right. you mentioned, and that people were afraid to deliver mail at the time? That's right. This was around 84, 85. And we were in a building on Park Avenue. And one of my first jobs was to go down to the mailroom to get the mail because the mailman didn't like coming up to the fourth floor because we had the word AIDS on the door. Wow. Now, yeah. it was a very different time. It w- I mean, it was a long time ago, but relatively in the sort of history of culture. It wasn't that long ago, right? So it's sort of shocking how much things have changed. Yeah. Wow. And then you went on to? I went on to work at Miramax and I was there for about three and a half years. I mean, working on some of um, the philanthropic stuff, I worked a little bit on the launch of Talk Magazine and I worked on uh, some of the Academy campaigns for some of the Miramax titles. And obviously that was when Miramax was really at its height. So there were Lots and lots of academy campaigns. <laughs> right, and I, th- I think they, they won a bunch. So, uh, they too. won it. They won a lot. Yes, so, it was. It was a. Congratulations it was on an, that. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't thanks to me, but it, it, it was a very exhilarating time. I think, particularly to be at that studio. Right, but obviously, the head of Miramax is uh, now a notorious figure. Right. We should say for those who don't know, we're talking about Harvey Weinstein, of course. It's a very, I think, conflicting thing now to think about all those things that were probably happening around us all at the time that we were not aware of. And frankly, I think a lot of us learned a lot. Well, I, I certainly learned a lot while I was there. I learned a lot from him. And it's, it's, it's kind of painful now to think at what cost to some other people. 
So, and then after that, that's right after that, you came into the... Yes, I was working for Miramax, and I had a small child who was who was about a year old, and I was finding it very difficult. Um, the schedule was very difficult, and traveling backwards and forwards to London, where part of my team was at the time. And I heard about this job at the Diamond Information Center from a woman called Joan Parker, who many, many people know very well in the industry. She's worked for De Beers for many, many years at the at the DIC. And she said she was leaving to, to take on another role. And did I know anyone? I said, well, I might be interested. And she said, oh, you're never going to be interested in this because it's going to be much too corporate for you. And I was like, oh, corporate, that sounds really good. Yes, I like it. I'd like regular hours with this small child. And of course, it turned out not to be corporate at all. But I, I went and met with Richard Lennox, who managed the business then in the US. And, and I, I liked him. And I guess he liked me okay, because he hired me. And I had a pretty long run there at the DIC. And I think we did a lot of, you know, really interesting work, really creative work. And I learned everything about the industry there, I guess I should say. And what were your, the, the campaigns you worked on at the time, I think was the the right hand ring. Yeah, and- yeah. Would Journey. You after Three Stone? Um, it, we, we were still working on Three Stone when I started. I started there in 2002. Was there for about 10 years, nearly 10 years. So it was, you know, we went through a lot of campaigns, but definitely Right Hand Ring. And we did some projects on fancies and when we did some uh, sort of solitaire focus programs and, and lots of things. But so it was an exciting time. If you can think back, what were your impressions of the diamond industry? How did you find it different? Well, I I think it was quite opaque to me, and I really didn't know about the structure of the industry. And I think looking back, you know, part of the reason I did it was opaque is that the industry is difficult. The supply chain is complex. The distribution is complex. It's very fragmented. So there were a lot of things that I didn't understand about that. You know, I came from an industry where there were basically – three or four big studios and some indies, right? And that's how all the product pretty much got to market. This is before Netflix and streaming and all those things. So I think I found the industry complicated and I found the product quite complicated and it was definitely a steep learning curve. But I think also I saw lots of possibilities because I'd come from this very commercial, promotional background where you you thought about you know, running campaigns around things kind of intensively. So I felt like there was a lot I could do by merging those two worlds. And that was interesting to me. And it was exciting. When you look back at those campaigns that you worked on, what was the most successful one? Or what what was the one that you felt like really hit? Because when I think about right hand ring, I, I still remember the, the catchphrases, sort of women of the world, raise your right hand. Right. And I loved it, but I wasn't sure. Did it? Did it hit? Did it? Was it a success um, in your I, eyes? I, I, th- I think it depended on the channel. I mean, I think it did very, very well in certain places, some of the department stores, for example, and less well in other places. I think as a kind of movement, it was interesting because it sort of gave voice to this giving permission to women to buy diamonds for themselves, which I think was a huge barrier and probably to an extent still is a little bit of a barrier, you know, but it's obviously much more accessible and approachable now than it was, say, 10 years ago. So I think that was that was very exciting. I think that the educational work we did leading up to the release of the Blood Diamond movie was incredibly satisfying, just marshalling those large groups of people to do education from sort of point of sale, you know, all the way up and down through the trade. That was exciting. Certainly engaging people like Russell Simmons to go to Africa and take a look at what diamonds do. Again, you know, 
Was it the most successful thing? I don't know. It's hard to measure success, but it was it was really important work. It was really satisfying work. And I think that, you know, it started something that still needs to go on now. But that kind of education about what the industry does and how it contributes to development, it's 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 important. Right. Those are two topics that we're still discussing. You know, exactly. Women, self-purchase yes. and uh, sustainability. Right. And, right. And also getting the word out, but also improving processes. Right. Very ahead of their time. That self-purchasing conversation, I think, was just getting started when the Red Hand Ring campaign kicked in. So, yeah, kudos to the beers and to you for at the time for talking about things that I feel like are still not completely embraced and then you went, you did stuff for gold. Yeah. You did stuff for gem fields, yep. color stones. How'd you find the industries the same and how'd you find them different than diamonds? Well, I think that there hadn't been a big effort at scale for some time in gold. So it was, there was, there was a lot of room to grow gold, I think. Gold was very expensive. The price of gold was very high when I started there. And I think a lot of Younger designers were not using gold because it was it was just too expensive for them. And so I think the whole campaign we ran there was about making gold sexy and cool again and trying to 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 get it back in those very influential and kind of imaginative sort of designers. So we launched this platform called Love Gold, which I, I still consider probably some of the most creative work I've done in my career in that sector. And I was working with an amazingly gifted team of people. We had a lot of freedom, I think, because the World Gold Council hadn't been very active in the jewelry space for a while. It was it was kind of easy to start with this very fresh voice. I think we really did move the needle on how people viewed gold jewelry, particularly yellow gold jewelry, you know, it was, it was, it was right when everybody was still very focused on white metal. So it was a way of having a new conversation about yellow and the warmth of yellow and, you know, how it feels in your hand and all those kinds of things. Gemfields also was trying to do something different in that they were trying to promote colored stones, which usually don't get promoted. I mean, what's interesting about Gemfields is I think they were trying to sort of codify and, and, and sort of regularize promotion around color in the way that had been done for diamonds as a sector and, and gold as a sector before. And because they had emeralds and rubies and, and obviously an interest in, in, in developing other colors too, they were, they were trying to be the voice of that sector. And I, you know, if we think that the jewelry industry is is so broad and and so uh, fragmented, but you know, colored stones particularly so, right? There are so many different value chains. They're coming from so many different parts of the world. Lots and lots of small producers. So, I think they were trying to move towards a kind of model where you promote color as an idea, and and that was that was interesting to me. One of the things that is interesting. I mean, you worked at the DPA. You were one of the original members. So many people are hung up on the old model of what De Beers did, right? When it was De Beers, you know, the big campaign and the big overarching campaign and the whatever it was, $200 million they used to spend. And even though we now have a DPA and we now have some of these things, I don't know if that's necessarily possible to recreate in this environment, to have a single campaign that had so much reach and so much power to influence people. 
I'm not sure. I mean, I think I think part of what De Beers had in those big campaigns in the early days was was definitely sort of the bench strength, right? It was to do with the spend, and it was to do with aligning other big groups of spend in the industry behind it, so that you multiplied up that spend. So I think that's part of it. But part of it was creating a new message, a new conversation around what was then termed a big idea. And you know what made that idea big was the budget behind it, right? It was the important thing was to have an idea. And I think it gets to the key thing, which is I think the industry needs to constantly create new ideas for consumers. So whether the industry is able to do it in the way it's done it in the past is, is another question, possibly not. But I think what's for sure is the industry needs constantly new ideas and we have to follow the consumer wherever the consumer is going and constantly serve them new things in new ways. So I, th- I think that's the, the vacuum that has to be filled and maybe it doesn't get filled in quite the same model. Because that was the the big thing were quote-unquote beacons, right? Right, right. right. You would have right. a new right. product and right. it would kind of be constantly priming the pump with a new idea. I mean, the beacons were important because they weren't just a piece with a design, right? They were a piece and a design which had a thought embedded in it, you know, and something that was sort of intriguing and, and, and interesting to the consumer. And I think that's what we need. Is there anything that really you think is like great or that people should be emulating or looking to besides right hand ring? And- um, I've loved a lot of the things that Tiffany has done. I also remember very vividly a print campaign that Harry Winston did it's got to have been 10 years ago, which used um, photography of exotic birds and a lobster and a fish that was, to me, so modern and so so kind of groundbreaking in terms of juxtaposition of a fantastic piece of jewelry next to something in the natural world, like a bird, like a lovebird. I, I think they had two lovebirds for the, the engagement ring execution. So I love that. I love the campaign that Bulgari ran with Julianne Moore that was kind of inspired by a very early Helmut Newton shoot. So I, I think there are all sorts of beautiful things that I've loved. And we'll see what comes out this holiday. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've probably heard so many people talk about diamonds. And one of the things we've been discussing is how, you know, society's changing in such a big way. Right. And, you know, De Beers just came out with this report talking about same sex marriage, talking about, you know, you can't call them bridal diamonds, you call them commitment diamonds, obviously an increased emphasis on female self-purchase. Do you see the industry really keeping up with that kind of stuff? And how important is that? I think it's really important, but I think it's really important to for us as an industry to keep up with the zeitgeist of the culture. And I think some of those things you've just mentioned have to do with, you know, cultural values changing, attitudes changing, and so on. I think we also have to be willing to kind of be wrong. You know, I, I was just at a, a conference in Latin America where a lot of people from Neda Porte and the head of Matches and um, Brian Bulk, who, who put together the conservatory, and a lot of other people were speaking and saying how the consumer was constantly surprising them. So they were offering different things, different retail models, different online, offline models, you know, multi-channel, et cetera. And how very often the consumer did not behave in the way that they predicted. So you need clearly an ongoing hypothesis of, of what the consumer wants, but ultimately it is the consumer who says what they want. And I think as an industry, we have to be willing to try things, maybe to borrow things from other 
sectors from fashion or lifestyle or leather or whatever, but we also have to be prepared to make mistakes and evolve. And, and certainly that's a lot of what I think about now with my team. And, 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 and you have to be just willing to take a little bit of risks. And I think that the jewelry sector probably because of the high value, the high innate value of the product, has been frequently unwilling to take risks, whether it's in retail or in marketing or in social conversations. And I think that's where we have to challenge ourselves to, to push further, to compete. Or, or simply they don't have the resources to... Or simply to, they don't have the resources. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I think it's a, that's, a, that's a big issue. So you look at the De Beers campaigns. What's, what's amazing about them is there was kind of this seven-year or I think eight-year hiatus, right, where there was no quote-unquote generic or what they call now category-driving advertising. And yet, you know, maybe sales went down a little bit, but the people still remember it. It was so consistent and so much a part of culture for 50 years that it really kind of had this huge long tail, and it still has a long tail because... People still talk about a diamond is forever. I mean, it's it's amazing in that way. I think it was it was beautiful communications. It was very high production values, and again, I think it had all those campaigns right. Whether it's shadows or whichever one, they had a strong emotional idea, and I think they live on in the culture for sure. What I think we're seeing now, though, is a generation of people who didn't ever see those ads, who didn't grow up with them, who don't remember sitting down in front of the TV after Thanksgiving dinner or whatever and seeing what is the new beautiful diamond ad. And I think that's where we have, you know, we have a generation of people who perhaps are not relating to the category in the way that people of my generation would. And do you think that is really what made those ads so affecting was the fact that they always had an emotional component. Yes. They always were. I think they had a strong emotional component and they had an idea baked in to the design, whether it was three stone ring or, past, you know, the past, present and future. It was, it was something that people, I think, could personalize, internalize, make their own and express it in the same piece of jewelry as everyone else. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews is what helps make them possible. Help spread the word. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And now, back to the show. Sal, you've always done, I think, in all the roles that I've known you, is partner with designers on these sort of campaigns where the designers end up using the stones of whatever organization you're working with or the material, whether it's the gold council using gold or uh, gem fields and using emeralds. And, and you've done that. And it seems to be now a formula that others have really embraced. I know Muzo is doing that now with partnering with designers. DPA has taken over what Canadian diamonds was doing. That seems like something you originated. I don't know if that's true or not, but you've always had this real connection with designers. And I feel like all the, all those, projects that you put together where you, you know, invited a kind of a slew of designers to incorporate the materials you were promoting. Those pieces were always really cutting edge and interesting. And I just wonder if you could speak a little to that, I don't know, that idea of bringing the industry, these sort of cutting edge, forward-looking designs, and whether you feel like that did move the needle. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was always interested in it. That's for sure. I'm 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 interested in putting valuable and fabulous materials in the hands of very creative people. And and there are some people that that are very creative but could never afford to create these kinds of things commercially. So I do see a role for special things. But I think the other dimension to it is the best of all is if you can get those pieces on the red carpet, right? Which is where I sort of connect all those worlds. I mean, that, that you have someone unbelievably talented creating something with your material, which is very special in some way, either very rare or, you know, very unusual in a certain way. And then placing it in in a very visible place, whether it's the the Oscars red carpet or Cannes or something like that. The combination of all those things, you know, makes a kind of statement. It pushes your material into a cultural conversation in a much bigger way. And I when I think of the, you know, the very first pieces we work with, Loren Scott on a couple of pieces actually for Nicole Kidman. And I had seen these beautiful diamonds when I first interviewed with De Beers. Um, they were crystals from Zhuaneng that are green on the outside. And if you cut and polish them, that, that green is fugitive, it disappears. But seeing those beautiful green crystals and thinking, what could you do with them to really talk about, you know, the origin story of these diamonds and they came from Zhuaneng and all that stuff. We showed them eventually to Lorraine Scott and she had this really wonderful idea of designing with the uncut crystals and, and made this really extraordinary piece for Nicole Kidman. And to me, that was just sort of, you know, a huge moment for diamonds to, to to be like exploding on the red carpet in a new way, in a different way. It was interesting. It was great for Zhuaneng. It was great for Botswana. And I, and I just, you know, those kinds of imaginative collaborations are, it's fun for me. <laughs> it's what I like yeah, to do. You're very right. I think whether or not you can calculate the return on investment, you know, at the retail counter from those kinds of you know appearances and, and the confluence of of celebrity and jewelry and you know millions of viewers, I, I don't know, but they certainly make an impression. And the impression, I suppose, is is gold these days. That's what people are looking for. And the thing that gets tweeted and retweeted and Instagrammed and regrammed, it's kind of all about that, right? Yes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. From a promotional standpoint, how has, and from a PR standpoint, a marketing standpoint, how has social media changed what what you do? I think it's changed a lot of things in that it's the way we all live, like the reportage on anything is so immediate, right? And it can go exponentially very, very fast. So there's a kind of velocity, which we have to think about now, which we didn't have to manage in quite the same way before. I think in terms of influencers and all that stuff, I mean, pitching an influencer on your product is sort of like pitching an editor at the magazine. So I think for a lot of us in PR and comms and marketing, the processes don't change that much. It's just you have to do it faster and you have to do more of them because there's this proliferation of outlets. You can't just go to one place and pitch it and that story will run. It has to be, you have to go to, you know, lots and lots and lots of sort of outlets simultaneously. So so it has changed the world. And I think there's a, you know, a, a sort of a big conversation going on right now about how do you value those impressions, you know, how important are they? How do they square up to other forms of media? And I think that the other interesting work is to think about the whole idea of multi-channel, you know, because all those channels, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, 
they all work in different ways. So how do you calibrate messaging and imagery so that each channel has something that's specific to it, but also carries the same basic message? And I think that's quite difficult, actually. Do you want to talk about Lightbox? It's I'm your, happy to talk your, about whatever you want, yeah. Rob, as usual. Yeah. <laughs> uh, your baby. So when you were approached... First of all, when was that and what was your reaction to the idea? Because obviously it's still, you think about it, it's still very surprising. And it's been a year or so. Well, I was gobsmacked. First of all, I should say that when I was approached, I was unemployed. Having had a long and illustrious illustrious career, my last two jobs have been discontinued. And I, I was unemployed for the second time in, in, in two years, I think, when um, when I was approached about this. So I did get a call. And they said very nicely, we see you're available now, i.e. you're unemployed. Um, We have something we might be interesting for you. We think you might find interesting that we'd like to talk to you about. And I obviously signed an NDA. This was late summer, early fall of 2017. And went to London to meet with Steve Coe, who told me about it. And I honestly, I was literally gobsmacked. I just couldn't believe you know, just to bend my mind around the idea of what they were doing and the tech they had and and so on. It was just, it was amazing. And, and, and because of that, I think I was able to be a lot more sympathetic and generous to people who were quite mean to me when they found out eventually what I was doing. And I understood that they were reacting from a point of shock and not necessarily personal judgment. Anyway, I think once I had time to think about it and really look at the research that had already been done, and that at that point there was quite a significant amount of research done on consumer attitudes to this this material. And there was clearly a real commercial opportunity. And, and, And to me, that was quite interesting because it was really a new story in the sector. There was clearly a, a, a commercial potential that was very significant. And it gave me the chance to work in color. And I was very interested in color. You know, I'd just been let go from Gemfields. And so the idea of doing something in color was exciting too. So yeah, I, I came around to it pretty quickly, I would say. Can you give us any insight on why they decided that particular time, the summer of... 2018. Obviously, they could have done it for a long time, probably, or maybe, maybe, maybe not. But I think they, they've certainly had the technology to do it for a long time. But why do they kind of decide, okay, this is the time we're going to go into this right now? I think they'd had the technology for a very long time. That's true. I don't think they identified a critical mass of interest that was big enough for a whole new market until maybe what, a year or two before I started, you know. So, so, and the other thing about De Beers, I think that, that maybe everyone in the industry knows, but just to be clear, they do everything in a very considered, careful way. So there is tons and tons of research, but this, these are not like sort of knee-jerk reactions, right? It's very considered. It's very thoughtful. And I think they researched it and researched it, and they had to be sure that the time was right to make this a success. Was it always kind of in its current form or was there were there other ideas that were played with before you kind of decided on, on what you were going to do? One of the things that surprised me at first was doing the white diamonds. And I, I was thinking maybe that was something, you know, when I first heard about it and I kind of read it very quickly, 
was like, well, maybe they're not doing white diamonds, but of course it turns out you were. What were some of the thought processes that kind of made it how it turned out? Some of the thought processes, I think, were based on what was resonating with consumers. So, for example, the colors and the color palette that we launched with were very much dictated by consumer taste. I mean, obviously, you can make any pink, any blue, but but there was a strong preference for those sort of softer colors, paler colors. So the white, pink, blue were established because of that. The pricing and the collection was definitely based on consumer testing. You know, what is the sweet spot? The sweet spot for a mass audience was below $1,000. So we designed pieces that would fit into that range. But I do think that what we have tried to do is be very reflexive and responsive over the last year as we've gotten real actual commercial data, right? And there are all these things that people say in focus groups, but sometimes then people surprise you and they behave differently once they're out there in the wild and faced with the product and so on. So it has been a lot of test and learn. And we started again with very, very simple silhouettes of almost basics because we felt like we couldn't talk about collections and fashion with any kind of, it would just make the message too complex. So over the year, it's become clear that people want more like fashion items. They wanted stackable rings. So we made stackable rings and we've tried to evolve those and start some new shapes and fancy shapes and do the fancy shapes and color and all that kind of thing. So I think you'll see the brand hopefully continuing to evolve as we get a little bit more real-time data. And And I do think that's what modern brands have to do. And I think as a new brand, we have a sort of special ability to do that because we are small. We can be kind of agile, kind of flexible. You know, we'll see where the market takes us. Were you surprised at the reaction it got? You said people were, some people were angry. This was somewhat deliberate. It was definitely the talk of that uh, year's Vegas show. Yeah, 2018, it it was definitely like anything all anybody talked about. And uh, apparently in Surat, people stopped working. I mean, there was kind of a little bit of a, a panic. Were you surprised it had such a kind of atom bomb-like reaction? No. I, I, I think we knew it was going to have a huge reaction. I think we knew people were going to be very surprised. I think we knew that people would take some time to bend their minds around the idea and understand it. As, and as I said before, it was, that was because I think we'd been through that process ourselves when we first started sort of negotiating with the idea and what would this look like and how would it be and how would it express itself in the world. So I don't think we were surprised by that. And I think that, you know, things kind of settled down pretty quickly, right? Once people really thought about it and really thought about where it was going to sit in the business and I, I think they got used to the idea. A lot of people will say that it, quote-unquote, legitimized the product. Not that it ever was an illegitimate right. product, but it kind of made it more acceptable in the trade to to deal with it. And I, you had the the pop-up down in the Oculus, which is downstairs from where we are, and it says laboratory-grown diamonds. And in many ways, it was like the biggest advertisement for laboratory-grown diamonds I've ever seen, you know, as a consumer. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the beers, they have to be worried to some extent about cannibalization. I mean, how do you, is, is that something you're worried about or is that something that you're concerned about? Like how, how has that played into the development of the brand? Okay. Well, there's a couple of things in there. First of all, 
us legitimizing the category, I don't really buy that. And I'll tell you why. We've seen a proliferation, right, of small brands, big brands, different brands, lab-grown brands popping up over the last year. Just knowing what I know about what it takes to bring a, a business and indeed a brand to market, those things have been in development for a long time. So they can assign it to us, but I don't think that's really true. I think all that stuff was going on anyway. This was going to happen anyway. We maybe gave a little bit more visibility to it because of our parent company, but I think that's a short-term sort of press reaction. That's not necessarily a long-term cultural impact. So all these all these brands were going to launch anyway. In terms of cannibalization, I think we believe this is a new market that we can help build and that Lightbox is kind of a lighthouse brand and it will help define and build and push the category as it goes. And we think there's a lot of opportunity in that sub $1,000 space, particularly for color, which by definition is not cannibalizing the natural diamond world because people like you and I are just not out there buying pink diamonds. Maybe Victoria is, but not not you and I. <laughs> um, obviously, obviously. So, so no, I think we 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 really believe that there is a new market there, and that that I would say that our first year of trading suggests that is true, and the color is performing extremely well. What's interesting is that obviously De Beers made a decision that they were going to focus on the fashion end of the business rather than the engagement end of the business. Mm -hmm. And it, it's interesting because it's the exact opposite of where most people in the lab business are doing. Most lab people are trying to get the engagement business because they see that's mm -hmm. the biggest part of the business. Do you think that eventually you'll have more, that that even some of these engagement brands will eventually start, especially as the assuming the price uh, continues to fall, will start going to the fashion end of the business? I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will because I think there's a much bigger opportunity there. I mean, I think the point is it's easier, right? If you're launching into a jewelry category, it's easier from the get-go to go into the bridal space. Where is all the search, you know, all the search, all the search traffic that you can try and, you know, interrupt is, is right there in Diamond Engagement Ring. Building a new category takes a lot more and is a lot more complicated than just trying to sort of torpedo into something that's already there. So I think as this fashion category builds and grows, I think we will see more and more and more of those people, those brands going into that because I think that's where you can actually grow not just diamond jewelry, but jewelry. I mean, I think we are underrepresented in that accessible fashion space. As we're talking, I get an email from Larkin Berry, which is another yes. lab-grown yes. diamond brand. And the subject line is ethical fine jewelry from Larkin Berry. And in the email, they say Larkin Berry is also partnered with One Tree Planted. So for every Larkin Berry purchase online or in store, five trees are planted. One Tree Planted refocuses on reforestation primarily in Africa, where people have suffered the worst consequences from diamond mining. I wonder what you think of that kind of positioning. It's obviously not a positioning that I assume Lightbox could take given your, your parent company and do you have that conversation? Do you just, or do you just shut, shut it down that conversation about what is ethical in the diamond space? What is sustainable? I mean, this has been a topic, Rob and I just had a long conversation about it in our last podcast. So how does Lightbox approach it? You know, and I would, I would also add, you know, we've talked a lot about sustainable marketing and yet that's something that Lightbox has stayed away from. Is that something you would ever think about? 
currently we would not think about it. And, and, and I think this is a very complicated subject and I think cannot be well addressed in a soundbite or a strap line on an ad. And, and the reason I think that is because I would say to extent we're all sinners, the question is how much, right? So there is a variety of ways to do mining. Some mining is harder on the earth than others. You know, some, some mines have better sustainable practices, backfilling practices than others. Some mines like the one I just visited, it's not a diamond mine, but I just visited in Colombia is having a very positive impact on communities around the mine. So there's all that sort of gradation of response. On the lab-grown side, it's the same. And, and you know, the impact of a very large, very modern, you know, very sophisticated factory is going to be clearly less than an old-fashioned factory that wasn't designed with low impact in mind from the get-go. But let's be clear, we all have an impact. And I think to say that one is necessarily better than the other is not always very honest. And we have chosen not to make environmental claims for Lightbox. Now, we have designed a new factory with a, a kind of a mantra of, you know, continuous improvement in mind with low impact. We are in Portland because of access to cheap, sustainable energy and so on. So we thought a lot about that. People smarter than me have thought about, about that a lot. And it's not that we're uninterested in that. It's just we do not believe we can honestly make it a pillar of the brand because when you grow these things, you do have an impact. And, and I think our responsibility, all of us, is to be as straightforward as we can be about the resources we are using and then have the consumer decide. And they have to make a choice, you know, do they want a lab-grown diamond? Do they want a new pair of jeans? Any number of things in their lives have an impact. And I think we shouldn't be trivializing the conversation by making it a strap line. All right. Do you want to update us on the retail tests and the factory? Yes. I mean, we, we just launched with some bricks and mortar partners. We're in 30 Reed stores in the Southeast. We're in Bloomingdale's in New York and San Francisco and online. Those have been literally in market two weeks and early signs is they're positive, but way too early to say definitively anything. The factory is 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 moving forward on plan and looking forward to that opening early next year. And I would be remiss. Uh, I always get the question, why is there not more one carat uh, diamonds on, on the Lightbox site? Do you, do, will there be in the future? More kinds of one carat? No, so one carat white diamonds in particular, one carat. I think there are going to be a substantial replenishment for holiday, yes. Okay. When you received the GEM Award, I remember one of the things you said is you wondered if your career would have gone differently if you were a man. And I, I don't want to necessarily paraphrase, but you said you, there was certain challenges that you found as a woman in this industry. I don't think it's just in this industry. I mean, I, I think that I think that we still live in a culture where it is it is hard for women to progress through corporate life at the same velocity as many men do. Yes. <laughs> and I think about it all the time. <laughs> okay. Um, is there any misconceptions about Lightbox, perhaps, that uh, you want to clear up? 
Well, I, I, I don't know if it's a misconception, but I have been struck that, that when people have talked to me, there's a kind of implication that there's, there's this massive sort of juggernaut of, a, of an organization like rolling forward. And, and I would just say, we are a very, very tiny team. We are a very tiny team. There's a handful of us in the US, I think four or five right now, and a handful of people in London. And that's really the, the engine of the whole Lightbox activity right now. So we're trying to be like the little engine that could, and we're trying to kind of reinvent what we do and think about what we do and be thoughtful about what we do. But people shouldn't assume that this is um, a giant sort of multi-headed sort of hydra of a business because it's 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 really not <laughs> any <laughs> any like message perhaps that you've learned that you would like to see the industry get better at or any thoughts or just a- anything you would that that you really feel you've learned and and that perhaps we need to to think about a little bit more to me the most important thing is being open to change and open to innovation and in retail, in design, in the way we communicate about our product, I just think we need to be willing to take risks and to maybe borrow some of the, I don't know, the cues or the language from other from other sectors and try things a little differently because I think we have to really, really run to compete with other things in the competitive set, whether it's fashion or accessories. And, and I think sometimes jewelry hasn't done that enough. Sally Morrison, thank you so much. Thanks, Sally. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor and engineer is Levi Sharp. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. 